Hello, listeners, and welcome to Cult Curiosity, the movie podcast where we discuss all the great cult films in cinema history. I'm Marcus McNeil, joined here by my co-host, Mr. David Murphy. Hi, Mark. Pleased to be here. Now, today we'll be covering the next in our series of black exploitation films in celebration of Black History Month here in the States. David, what did we pick out to discuss today? Slightly controversial choice. Um, the the white appropriation choice for our um, <laughs> for our season. Um, so apologies if anyone takes offence at this, but I, I did think it was worth looking at. We have picked um, Live and Let Die, uh, the James Bond film from 1973, which has has a distinctly um, black exploitation flavour to it. I feel so. I I felt that given we were doing stuff like Shaft, Sweetbacks, um, Badass Song. And Black Dynamite as part of this season. They're all pretty, well, with the exception of Shaft, the other two are pretty niche films. So I thought it'd be interesting to see how black exploitation, which is a, a definitively cult genre, uh, tried to meld with the uh, mainstream at one point. Um, so yeah, normally we do uh, what are its qualifications, but we might struggle for this one a little bit because it was a reasonably big hit at the time. I think it's a That's very true. widely watched watched film. It's part of the most successful film franchise of all time. <laughs> um, so, But there is an argument to say that Roger Moore's time as Bond is, has not been looked on as fondly as maybe some of the others. And it, it has a kind of, um, you know, campy element to it that does does make it a little bit cult I suppose but it depends on how you want to look at it there are people out there who maintain that Roger Moore was the best Bond but, uh, there's we'll some I do feel later. like Roger yes. Moore is sort of becoming the forgotten Bond as time goes on a little <laughs> bit more I was a little quizzical when you brought this up I was like let it die really then immediately hit me like oh yeah that was the the that's what I remember it as it's the black exploitation one it clearly leaned very hard into that and yeah it's the first time that we really see it penetrate the mainstream so i think it was definitely worth discussing and for much of the film i do think it really fits into the genre now of course cult films they don't necessarily have to be sort of away from the mainstream they tend to be but cult um, as a phenomenon can become bigger and greater uh james bond films definitely have a cult all of their own so yeah they still mm. we're kind of blending the two and going on with it here. So, Live and Let Die, this is from 1971, was it? Three. Yeah. All right, that one is directed by Guy Hamilton, a stalwart of the Bond franchises. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Roger Moore, Jane Seymour, Yafet Koto. Yeah, this one was a pretty big hit, grossing 35, over $35 million, adjusted for inflation. Um, I don't know, I think that's around, uh, I want to say like $70 million or something like that. Uh, but oh no, that would be that would be much more than that. It would be that, it would be around it would be around um, two hundred million today. Oh okay, made my calculations which are is, a little bit. Which off. by <laughs> today's yeah, which by today's bond standards, that's that's quite low. But mm-hmm. um, uh, it was it was struggling a little bit at the time. The Bond franchise, it it was, which is one of the reasons why it started to look to other genres to keep itself relevant so this is the first one we see in this experiment really, also the first one with roger moore right yes of course yes so i should have mentioned that uh, for people who weren't weren't aware um but yes we see we see this also in the man with the golden gun where it starts to embrace the kung fu genre and likewise but to disastrous effect in moonraker <laughs> when it started, tried to capitalize science on fiction. the science fiction uh, swell in the late 
70s thanks to Close Encounters and Star Wars. All right, so we'll go into a little bit of a meet-cute here. Of course, I was only able to see this film just uh, yesterday. <laughs> finished watching it. Yeah, uh, I'm, David, I'm when were you first what? able to see it? Oh, I was able to... I probably saw it when I was about six or seven years old. I was a huge Bond fan as, as a kid, as I remain to be these days. Um, the first film I can ever remember seeing was... Um, Thunderball with Sean Connery, which to me at least one of the lesser Bond films, but I was hooked from that point in. So, yeah, I probably saw this on a bank holiday uh, when I was a kid. I remember enjoying it a lot, and throughout my life, I have maintained that it is my favourite Bond film, despite the magnificence of some of the ones that have followed, like um, GoldenEye, Living Daylights was actually pretty good. Um, Living Daylights was actually my first Bond film. Ah yes, yes, that that's probably probably fits with your your age um, mm-hmm. because it came out in the, the, the mid eighties, didn't it? Yep. Um, and obviously the the magnificence is Skyfall, which I I think you know is is the best Bond film ever. But having now rewatched it for probably about the first time in fifteen years, I, I am going to have to change my opinion <laughs> of it a little bit. <laughs> it's not dated all that well. Um, though it's still it's still a core Bond film, it still has some very memorable moments, and yeah, the um, it was very well reviewed at the time, which was good for the franchise because it, like I say, it was on a downward trend. Diamonds Are Forever had been the previous Bond film, which wasn't all that well received, and for good reason. Um, so yeah, but I all I remember about it is. The crocodiles, the speedboats, um, and James Bond walking around completely conspicuously in <laughs> early seventies Harlem, the the only the only honky in town. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was watching this movie, I was expecting to be a much tougher watch than it, than it was. I was surprised by. I mean, it's it's very much so a product of its time in both the story mm. and in the. Uh, technical aspects of it uh but it's a much solider watch than i thought and um it sort of dragged there in the second act a little bit but i think by the time you get to the speedboat races and things like that it really picks up but that's when it starts shifting more towards being a proper james bond film and not just uh sort of mashing in between twix uh genres here indeed and i also believe this was your first roger moore james bond so, yeah, what, so what, are your, what are your what are your impressions of uh, Sir Sir Rog as uh, the titular um, secret agent? I rather like him. He comes off a little bit more suave and svelte than Sean Connery. Mm. Uh, I know that some people's knock on him. He doesn't have that same sort of rough edge as Connery does. But no. I think for being uh, that sort of secret agent. And trying to become a little bit conspicuous, uh, I, I see Roger Moore as being almost in a bit of a uh, everyman sort of sort of Bond in a weird way. I feel like he's you know, still got the same Bond quip and everything like that, but he feels uh, more at ease and more accessible in a in a strange kind of way. So I can see why a lot of people like him. He's uh, he's pretty enjoyable in the role, I think. That's that's an interesting takeaway uh, from it because he's often criticised for being a bit aloof as Bond, a bit uh, blue blood. <laughs> Um, he is, he is. That's true. Yes, he does come off right. that way too. <laughs> yeah. He he is he is really the one who who put Bond into this kind of suave 
suave light, whereas was Connery was a bit of a, a blunt tool. Um, Roger Moore always just kind of, you know, he wasn't averse to action, but it was he was more trying to charm his way out of things. But really, he just comes across as as an English eccentric. I think <laughs> of just <laughs> pretending to be a secret agent because he, he he never ever makes any effort to like fit in. <laughs> and of course, he leaves a huge trail of destruction around him, which this is the first Bond that, film that really starts to address the fact that this probably is pissing people off quite a yeah. lot. Um, that he's, you know, I've always liked the, feel, the theory that Bond is actually a double agent, um, that he's actually working for the Russians. And that's why he's just he's just using the cover of being an MI5. And the car's wanting destruction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolute chaos and destruction everywhere. So that credit, I did think it was pretty funny in this movie because, yeah, he doesn't put on quite a bit. He's, while going through Harlem, he's possibly the worst secret agent I've ever seen. <laughs> yes, just let me walk into a, a all Negro jazz club of some sort and, and sit down and, and not cover my accent or have a proper alibi as to why I'm there or anything and poke my nose where it doesn't belong. So I didn't think it was funny that way. Also, didn't. I think the movie did try to play that up a little bit more too. Like, what the fuck is this guy doing here? Yeah. <laughs> and everybody's just trying to kind of giving them the side eye the whole time and sorts of plays on the expectations too. Uh, so we'll go into some of the notables for this film. Of course, we're discussing it because it fits into the black exploitation theme that we're doing for this month. Uh, David, what's some of the really uh, hallmarks of the black exploitation genre that we see in this film quite a bit? Um, well, it's set in the early 70s and the opening section is in New York and it's mainly focused around black people, which is a, a pretty good start. <laughs> um, but there's also uh, there's there's drugs, there's there's pimps, um, there's 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 a few little, um, you know, the, uh, during at least the first half an hour, it, it's definitely clear that the the. Um, the the African Americans have got the, got the upper hand on Bond, um, particularly with his seating arrangements in the various <laughs> restaurants that he goes into. They always seem to be ready for him. Um, I don't know if every single table disappears into the floor or the wall, but it that's what you seem do. You, you where just cover sits. all your bases. <laughs> yeah. If you went by the they bar, always... probably the same thing with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they always they always get him. So yeah, there is there is an element of sticking it to the man. I think um, <laughs> that we also saw in 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 Sweetback. So yeah, I th- I think for the first half an hour, it's it's yeah, I think it's definitely definitely fits in with the black exploitation genre. But after that, it kind of eddies in and out of it. Um, obviously, Yafet Koto is is our Bond villain this time round. Um, I love Yafet Koto mainly uh, because of his role as Parker in in Alien. Um, how did you find him as a as a Bond Bond baddie? actually rather liked him. Um, I think mm. he had an interesting duality of being a bit of a misdirect as a character, but at the same time, uh, although being a heroin trafficker and things like that, uh, just, just kind of being a straight up mustache twirling Bond villain at the end, <laughs> uh, I, I think it was, a, it, was a, it was a good choice. And I think, granted, the era that this was made, it would be very easy to make him a prototypical like Harlem, you know, smack dealing uh prostituting pimp of some sort and 
Instead, they decide to elevate the character a little bit and make him a, a little bit more of his own agency and a little bit more sinister than something we would typically see in a black exploitation film. And that way, I thought he ran a, a pretty efficient and uh, complex operation. Uh, I'm glad they kind of pulled away that veneer of the black exploitation to reveal the ongoings here are quite Bond like and pretty traditional in terms of what you expect. He's got. Shark Tank and everything like that, of course. Oh, of course <laughs> he does. Yeah, and actually, an unnecessarily slow lowering device yes. to put Bond into it. Yes. <laughs> so I, I thought it was it was interesting to see them both subvert and then unsubvert any sort of expectations that you have with Bond villains as his character progressed throughout the movie and uh, his performances were, were pretty cool too. Yeah, and also we get we get our first uh, black Bond girl uh, played by Gloria Hendry as Rovi. Rosie Carver. Yep. Um, what 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 did you make of, of her? Well, of course, there's a, a bit of a historic thing here because uh, mm. at the time, uh, sort of depicting any sort of interracial relationships uh, in cinema or TV was still a little bit of a hot topic. So it was much talked about, much discussed. And uh, this is something that I know the black community at the time quite celebrated because we typically did not see characters, especially in these big franchises like this at the time. Uh, be introduced in such a way. I think her character was still uh, a little bit too thinly written, <laughs> everything like that. But <laughs> it was it was still a step forward. I mean, she's basically there to bumble around until she's unceremoniously killed by a, a stray dart from a scarecrow. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I think it was a shame that her character was kind of wasted in that regard, but it kind of fits in what you'd expect to see from a movie uh, from this time, too. Yeah, um, yeah. I must admit, I wasn't, I wasn't too impressed by how she was portrayed. She's, she's supposed to be a CIA agent. Yeah, I was like, who let her through the academy? Jesus. Yeah, (laughs) working for uh, Koto's uh, Doctor Kananga, Um, and she does come across as incredibly useless, but not, however, as useless as the main Bond girl, Jane Seymour, as solitaire, who I had completely forgotten is the blandest and worst Bond girl perhaps ever. She is utterly useless throughout the entire film and is is just deployed completely for the purposes of peril, which is a step backwards, I think, for the franchise um, that started off with such a positive um, roles for women with Ursula Andress and Dr. No. Um, So, yeah, I felt that was a bit regressive, which isn't the only element of the film, (laughs) which is a bit regressive. Um, Are we coming up on that now? Oh, let's just skip to it anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a distinctly um, a colonial feel to some of its depiction of um, black people away from uh, from Harlem, shall we say? Um, shall I just just say it? It's it's a bit racist. Yeah, it's pretty racist. <laughs> it's, I mean, they're they're essentially yeah. gyrating voodoo savages once you get mm. out of the the, uh, the the comforts of Harlem, and even within Harlem. There's a lot of things going on, so I, I wanted to bring it up in our notes. Like, is it a product of uh, just bad writing and racism on the part of the creators of this film, or does it in itself sort of fit the tropes that we see uh, with black exploitation films, where even the main characters are typically unsavory sorts of themselves? We don't really get uh, a whole lot of uh, characters that are played on the right side of the law, or even as, as straightforward characters. Everybody's uh, a bit of a uh, miscreant of some sort. Yeah, um, yeah, I am. I am going to defer to you a little bit on on 
this one because yeah, I mean, are are I mean, are they depicted much worse? Are I shouldn't say they. That's terrible. Other <laughs> other black characters in this film, you know, certainly like I say, away from the uh, island of Saint Monique, which is 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 definitely you know steeped in in voodoo mythology and so forth. Um, um, are they, are they that much worse than we've seen in some of the other? Bond films? Um, uh, not Bond films, exploitation films, sorry. And exploitation films. Part of me wants to say yes, but I think for the most part, no. So I'm still very undecided and split on this myself. Uh, I think a, a number of exploitation films is probably some of the things we're, we're going to cover here. Um, they, they highlight some of the struggles that went on in the black community with crime and drugs and things like that, but... It's always through this really um, sinister sort of outlook. It, it never really addresses the conditions that sort of lead to it. It's always mm, the yeah. you know the the vultures preying on the weak of some sort, and we don't really get any sort of nuance uh, from villains or you know antagonists in the films. They're they're always well, I want to push drugs because I just like selling drugs, and that's the thing I'm gonna do. Not because <laughs> you're starved of opportunities in your community, and you know, there's uh, rampant lack of infrastructure and access to jobs and you know we're still getting over Jim Crow laws things like that so it's uh I, I, I think if I had to say for sure I would say no it's really not all that different than we see in a, a number of black exploitation films yeah but I think you're right there are key pieces of context and empathy missing I mm-hmm. think the, the, yeah you're right black people are, are generally shown in this to be quite tricksy um, and you know, and just criminal. There aren't any sympathetic black characters in it, really. Which, yeah, um, which is strange because the franchise again has, has <coughs> there's quite a few prominent black cast members in Doctor No who come off a lot better than they do in this. So, yeah, it, yeah, it is. It is quite regressive in yeah. that sense. And we see it a lot whenever Bond is captured and he's. You know, taken by one of the chairs or wall pieces that turns around or something, and no one skips a beat in any of the clubs or anything like that when it happens. No, this happens all the time. (laughs) Like, oh, another white boy got caught in a trap. Well, (laughs) here's the next song. (laughs) More for him. Yeah, but this isn't this isn't the only broad stereotype that um, that uh, Live and Let Die paints as well, because uh, the good people of Louisiana certainly uh, (laughs) get a very Stereotypical yeah. depiction. The white people well. are treated a lot better. Maybe this whole thing is a little bit, a little bit nationalistic against Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like welcome to America, we Bond. Everybody's a pimp, a drug dealer, or a ignorant cop of some sort. So, <laughs> yes, that would be Sheriff J. W. Pepper, who was actually a recurring character throughout uh, Moore's time. Um, yeah, uh, played by Clifton James. I, you know what. I thought he was always a bit too broad, but I actually thought he was quite welcome watching it on on this run around because he actually just points out what what a ridiculous force agent of chaos that Bond really is. <laughs> um, the bit where he's uh, Felix uh, Leiter, the Bond handler, has to has to debrief him, and he's just <laughs> and he tells him he's a secret agent. And he's like. On whose side? <laughs> it's like um, they just caused a boat chase at this point in time that probably did untold amounts of 
public and private property damage, and there's zero accountability for Bond throughout that yep, whole thing. Yep, yep, he just walks away from it, not a problem. Um, <laughs> so it's about an interesting uh, which, thing when he when he shows up, we'll go into some of this a little bit, because it does this genre shift again, so... We have this Bond film that's set up as a black exploitation. Then the minute that the chase scenes start happening through Louisiana, all of a sudden, I was saying before the show, I'm like, am I watching Smokey and the Bandit? Like, what's going on? <laughs> so it becomes this uh, this Southern action comedy, which is kind of a genre within itself here in America. And I thought that was a, a bit of an un, unexpected turn, especially for a Bond franchise film. Yeah. It's it's this is the point where Bond starts to slip into self parody, which is something that historically is kind of viewed as a bit of a mistake. Um, I must admit, for someone who's probably for someone who may have grown up with with Daniel Craig as as Bond, i.e., you know, uh, later millennials and Generation Z, I've I've got no idea what they'd make of um, uh, Moore's era, uh, Moore's time as Bond. Uh, whether they think it's like a spoof or <laughs> just outright silliness, um, because but, let's say uh, I mean a lot of the Austin Powers films they're they're based mm. a lot on on Moore's Bond from the looks of it. They all yes. seem to yes, be very much uh, parodies of him. Yeah, I I think they are because that's around the time where Mike Myers grew up. He mm-hmm. grew up with with Moore's Bond as as I did, you know, initially. Um, I mean. I don't know. I I always thought Americans thought quite fondly of of Moore as as Bond. I know Octopussy's a far bigger deal over there than it was over here. We always thought it was a bit silly, but I see loads of references in American culture towards. Yeah, that and uh, Moonraker was hugely influential. We there's, I feel like every time we're in any sort of uh, spy genre or anything like that, eventually there will be a Moonraker esque reference or episode or something <laughs> like that. Whenever we picture. Uh, the prototypical bad guys now and their volcano bases or whatever they have and their hitchmen clad and white helmets running around and things like that. We see this repeatedly pop up uh, throughout films and, and TV and all that is, is Oats and Moonraker. So I think that one especially is very, very much so adored by American audiences for some reason. Yeah, it's, um, it is, it is, it's an interesting artifact, Live and Let Die. Um, and it kind of feels this kind of, triumvirate this opening triumvirate for more uh where, which was more successful for him uh with the follow-up with the man with the golden gun which also did quite well and then the spy love me which is is rightly regarded as his best best for bond and then after that yeah it does it does go downhill quite quickly um but speaking of which i mean let's let's i think we've covered the performances mainly though i do have to uh poke a bit of fun at Jane Seymour who is horrendously <laughs> actually let's let's go a little bit more into this tech. because this is this is something interesting I think just on, based on looks alone of course uh, mm. I think she's probably one of the most gorgeous Bond films mm. or Bond uh, girls to be put on film uh, she seems to rank quite high in a lot of people's rankings but yeah watching this movie I was like <laughs> <laughs> like she does nothing but she have an object for James Bond to save and, and then bang so uh, yeah, yeah I think she, she embodies she allows... the absolute worst of the the Bond girl trope in in every way yeah yeah she is the damsel in distress who is basically a device to allow Bond to be a white savior which is is pretty distasteful in the, this this day and age because in, in case you haven't seen the film solitaire is 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 a tarot card reader under the um thumb of uh, Dr. Kananga, 
Um, and yeah, I mean, who you know um, abuses her quite quite a lot. Obviously, in a in a kind of uh, pretty uh, safe manner for the screen, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. I I found I found that whenever she turned up on screen, I was oh god, <laughs> it's just <laughs> yes, nice nice to look at, but um, not a lot else is is going on there. And as I've already said, I don't. I I think it was a step backwards for the franchise. But I want to get uh, your opinion yeah. on this. What's your take on that whole graveyard scene too? Towards the end of the movie, I was getting a lot of echoes of, uh, say, King Kong when she was getting yeah, strapped to the post yeah. and something like. Okay, this is too on the nose to be unintentional, <laughs> and that kind of gave me a bad vibe with you know the unrestless natives and and all yeah, sorts restless going on. Natives yeah. and like I say, it's it, Bond has always been an extension of British colonialism so i'm not surprised to see it there's no way they do it now um for very good reasons and but yeah i mean it is i didn't realize it was quite so oblique about it and quite so carefree it's just like oh yeah but this this is you know it's that classic british attitude of well this is how they are and this is how they like it so you know (laughs) (laughs) but we can't can't let them have our white women so we've got to go in there and get her back <laughs> blow a few of them up on the way through to <laughs> yes so yeah uh i think that brings us on to uh, guy hamilton's directing um which i felt he did a magnificent job he is as you said he's a bond stalwart he did no less than four bond films in his time which i think is the most out of any director yeah uh but most crucially of all, he did the um, franchise-defining Goldfinger, uh, which obviously is, is is ranked as one of the very finest Bond films, and for very good reasons. Uh, he also did Man with the Golden Gun and Diamonds Are Forever as well. So, but yeah, I think he handles this one pretty well. I think he apes the kind of gritty black exploitation feel quite well in the opening act, and then when the action comes along he, he certainly delivers um what did you reckon to the um bit with the crocodiles and alligators <laughs> I, I actually uh I, I, I rather liked that it's one of the things i was familiar with prior to, to seeing the film uh i just thought it was it was kind of cute i guess <laughs> for what it was uh i do think that he did a fantastic job with a lot of the action and, and direction uh for this film the chases which you go back and watch some of these older films from that time period they could film rather stodgy and like the the stakes are pretty low these sequences in this film actually felt rather tense so rather from the initial car chase at the start of the movie uh the chase with the planes around the tarmac at the airport and uh of course the speedboat chases towards the end of the movie he he nails it across all respects there uh rather spectacular stunts that take place and everything and i think they they still hold up quite well today yeah, he is he is um a director who's kind of famed for doing the, the most notable Bond stunts because he also does the uh, car jump across the uh, twisted bridge in the Man with the Golden Gun which is rightly regarded as one of the finest stunts ever performed on screen. But I do think I do think the alligators are right up there. They did that for real. Though those were real alligators. Oh, they the were. Stunt. Obviously, that, I did obviously not know. the stuntman ran across. <laughs> I don't know why uh, they decided to do that. Why they couldn't just have? I think he wanted he wanted to see them kind of snapping at him. So the animatronics probably were were way beyond them at that point. Yeah. But they must have waited ages for them to all line up, 
And I've seen I've seen outtakes <laughs> where the stunt guy falls off into the water while dashing across them. Which I was about to say, how many tense. shots at a take did they... <laughs> How many takes do they really have to, to get this one down? How many stuntmen did they go through? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think he does. He does a fine, fine job, really. So, um, and I think that kind of ties us in with with the memorable moments from it. Um, I do think that, like I say, the black exploitation vibe is definitely there, and which is why I think it just about qualifies for this for this month. But. Here's a, here's an interesting question. Do you think the black exploitation as a genre, in it not in its entirety, but in its kind of central um, conceits, often owes quite a lot to Bond, in a way. I do I do think so, and we see more of this once we see Shaft take off because in a lot of yeah. ways, you know, Shaft is just, he's like a black James Bond. <laughs> that's, that's what it really comes down to. You know, he's kind of a a man of his own agency that's kind of able to operate with impunity, and you know be a bit mm. of a vigilante presence in, in the black community. So I think this film, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot that stands out. And of course, black exploitation itself takes a lot and borrows from other genres too. So uh, throughout the black community and a lot of um, directors at this time, they were really inspired by Kung Fu films. Uh, Bruce Lee was a huge influence. Shaw Brother films were a big influence on them. So uh, black exploitation itself kind of lives and develops and evolved out of other genres, basically being reinterpreted by by black filmmakers. So I think mm. there's always going to be a little bit of a a trading and a passing back and forth of, of things that go on in, in regards to it. Yeah, because we're also doing Black Dynamite this month, which which okay, it's a spoof of black exploitation, but that that owes an awful lot to Bond as well. It it does depict him as this kind of super agent. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did. I, I didn't quite realize that when I picked this. I just wanted to pick it because I was interested to see um, how we we look at it. its its um, foray into the mainstream. But yeah, I started to realize as I started to watch uh, Black Dynamite and Shaft. It's like yeah, it does. You know, there is a, there is a case of, of of black appropriation going on here <laughs> as, as well. And this is going this is going both ways. I feel. Yeah, I um, think uh, even Bond himself. The, the character and how he's depicted, you know, being a bit of a womanizer who, mm. you know, uses the power of his sexuality and masculinity to, you know, get women or overcome obstacles. Those are all the same things that typically have for uh, the protagonists of black exploitation films. I mean, you throw an afro on Bond and darken his skin and he's, <laughs> you know, still a picture perfect, uh, you know, uh, black exploitation anti-hero. So I think that that very much so holds true. Yes, absolutely. So, was the true black exploitation film or just just slight a slight tinge? What do you think? <laughs> I, I think it's really somewhere in the middle. If I had to consider it, um, I would say just due to so much of it really fitting um, into the black exploitation mold, I would kind of consider it one. I, th- I think especially for the time it was made, just the, the profile that it gave to black exploitation films. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to not include it in the same genre. I think. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. I I think it's it's not. Yeah, it's not at its core a black exploitation film. It is still very much a Bond film. But you know, it's as I said in my preview copy for for this podcast. It's um, 
it, it does seem to wear it with with pride. It, it does seem to think it's it's. Yeah, it's not mocking or thrum, thumbing it. its nose at no. it at all. I think it's, it they very much so um, try to make a, a spiritual black exploitation film in the Bond genre, yeah. and I, I think they were successful at that. Yeah, so I don't think it quite. I, I, yeah, that's a good point. I don't think it, it pushes black exploitation into the into the sunken place, as it were, <laughs> <laughs> to to adopt it. I think it does it does honor the genre quite quite well. Um, it's a shame it doesn't do quite the same for um, African Americans in in general. But um, <laughs> yes, I think it does it does honor honor the genre, and as as we've already explored, it it does it does set the standard for. Bond crossing into other genres and starting to pull in other influences, which is something that has carried on throughout the franchise. <coughs> we we even to the modern day where Bond had to change um, in the wake of nine uh, eleven and the arrival of the Jason Bourne films, which which changed changed the franchise almost completely. Um, yeah, I mean uh, Daniel Craig's films are almost unrecognizable from these. Yeah, I had that in notes because I, I wanted to discuss this a little bit. Is this really the first film that we see where Bond crosses into other genres that sort of sets that expectation of throughout every period, there's going to be a mold that Bond sort of fits into, just like uh, I think towards the end of, say, uh, Pierce Brosnan's run, Bond was essentially, he was a superhero. He was Batman in the guise of James Bond yeah, is what was. it came down to. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Brosnan era, with excluding GoldenEye, is... is I think that is the worst time for Bond. It got very I agree. very yeah. quickly. Um, nothing against Brosnan in the in the title role, who I think did an excellent job of fusing True. All, the, all the previous. He deserved better movies together. To be. <laughs> yes, uh, he just deserved better scripts, really, because um, he proved he could do it in Goldeneye, which is a fantastic Bond film, and it's rightly regarded as one of the best. But yeah, it, and it was important. It, it's why the franchise has survived for so long. Um, what is it now? 20, 26 entries we're up to. Mm-hmm. The most, the biggest gross for any franchise in the world, which is probably thanks to the volume of films rather than its uh, <laughs> quality. But um, it's it's still with us. Everyone can't wait to get their hands on on the next Bond. It, you know, we're, we're constantly, it's constantly in the news cycle of who's going to be the next Bond. Um, so, yeah, it was an important step for the franchise to take it wasn't always successful but here i think it it works i think so too now is this something that we could do a cult rating for here does it mm-hmm. uh fit into what we have outlined what did you pick for this one i'm <coughs> i'm purely out of no- nostalgic fondness i'm gonna give it a diamond in the rough i think i'm not sure it deserves it but it's just just pure sentiment is is ruling this. I th- I think there's an argument that it's a curate's egg because there are bits that work and there are definitely bits that don't. Um, and there's also a collect an argument to say it's a collector's item because if you like Bond, this this is definitely one you should see. It's it's a sea change for the for the franchise, and and it's 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 a you know it's it's, it's as good as Bond film as any. Um, but. Yeah, I still think. Yeah, I think it's got just enough notable because it is a sea change for the franchise, and I think it's got just enough standout sequences in it that yeah, I think it, it is rough around the edges. The racism in it is a little bit unforgivable in this day and age, <laughs> but 
um, it was made at a time when people weren't so aware of this kind of thing. And I think we always have to be careful when we look back on things. We have to accept them for what they... We have to give them their, their context. Um, we do. I mean, you know, six years before this film was took place, you know, black people weren't allowed to drink from the same mm. fountains as white people. So it's always important to hold those things in mind when you look back and, and see these things. And I actually agree with your sentiment. This is the same rating that I'm giving this film to. Um, I had a lot of apprehension about watching this movie, but uh, it turned out liking it a lot more than, than I thought I did. I think it's, it's uh, quite a good Bond film. And uh, I think going back at it and looking at it with new eyes, uh, even some of the things that take place, uh, they, they come off as they're, they're at least more palatable because of the, uh, I think, the care that the filmmakers took on part of some other aspects in the movie and what they were mm. really trying to do with it. I think to them, uh, this was probably as progressive of a piece as they were able to do with the franchise at that time. And I think that deserves a little bit of recognition. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. All right, so that's going to do it for this episode. Our next and last installment in our Black Exploitation series for the month is going to be Shaft. So Indeed. that one I'm looking forward to because I have not seen Shaft uh, probably in about 20 years or so. I want to say it's me. been a long, long, me. long, long time. <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I've, I've actually seen the first uh, five minutes um, recently, just checking the copy that I got, but... Um, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. The, 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 I'm sure there won't be many arguments uh, to say that that is the defining black exploitation film. So, it should be interesting to finish our season on that one. Yep, perfectly stated. So, thank you everybody for tuning in and making this part of your day. We'll catch you next time. Take care. <laughs>